And now, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I am pleased to introduce the second annual celebration of outstanding Canadian contribution and achievement, the Order of Canada, and several of its honorees. Established in 1967 by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, the Order of Canada is the centerpiece of Canada's honour system. Recipients are recognized for a lifetime of outstanding achievement, dedication to their community, and service to our nation. Canadians from all sectors of society are recognized for making a difference. Now, before I introduce three of these wonderful citizens, I wanted to take a moment to introduce one of Canada's greatest storytellers and one of Newfoundland's greatest sons, Rex Murphy. A quintessential Canadian, he has been virtually everywhere in this country, whether in his CBC radio show Cross Country Checkup, his commentary on the national or his regular newspaper columns, he speaks to Canada and Canadians in a way that few of us do. In his work, his travels, his conversations, he's acquired a sense of this country like no one else. He knows Canada and he knows Canadians. And he is a champion of this event. And Rex, we're very delighted to have you with us. Thank you. And joining him today are three great Canadians who I have admired for many years from afar and who I am very much looking forward to learning more about. Carolyn Acker, founder of Pathways to Education Canada. She has worked tirelessly to break the cycle of poverty in this country and has championed several programs for disadvantaged and homeless individuals. Former Supreme Court Justice Ian Binney, a man who has made significant contributions to Canadian law. Following an impressive career as an advocate, he was appointed directly from the bar to the Supreme Court, where he served for distinction, with distinction for 14 years. And Ken Dryden. For all the students in the audience, Mr. Dryden has an inspiring story. He was a successful hockey goaltender while at the same time a university student. He was Ontario's first youth commissioner, a former member of parliament, and a gifted writer. A champion of youth literacy and education, he personally established a post-secondary scholarship to improve access to higher learning for youth from foster homes. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Mr. Murphy and our Order of Canada recipients to the Canadian Club of Toronto podium. Thank you very much. <clears throat> I'd like to say thank you also to the people who have attended, and I'll join in the stress that was placed on the welcome that we give to the younger people who are here today. You're here in a double uh, kind of capacity. One is that you will have the opportunity to sponge-like uh, absorb uh, the deep wisdom <clears throat> and achievements of some of these people on this stage. But secondly, when you're in this hall now, we're protecting you from any further news from municipal government of this city. <laughs> So we have a hygienic as well as an educational reason for welcoming you here. Uh, I'm not sure why I'm here, of course. I've read the, um, the biographies and resumes, in a sense, the reasons why these three have been recognized by the Queen, uh, both for the quality of their life, the depth of their moral character, and the extent of their achievement. And it's a fairly despairing project because it makes me realize that I have no life. You'll notice the three chairs there are white. 
they signify accomplishment, <coughs> uh, intellect, and moral depth. And that gray one there, that's uh, failed journalism. <laughs> Good afternoon, my name is Mike Duffy. I'm <laughs> <laughs> I really wasn't going to do that, but anyway. The purpose of the, of the event is to have some amount of exchange, and I'm dropping all irony, all kind of lightness, have some exchange with people whom our own country, through the exigency of the crown and the honor system, have marked out as having done something exceptional, uh, of having given some compass, perhaps, to the tone of our times, or in an intellectual or other field, has plumbed areas of achievement that the majority of us, let's be frank about it, are not going to see. And one of the governing impulses behind this kind of, it's semi-formal and it's, it's fairly loose, this kind of thing is to take advantage of the kind of insight or the kind of experience that comes from perspectives that are, in many cases, not given uh, to the majority. What is it like to be, let's take Mr. Dryden as an easy example, what is it like to be a person who's had such a protean career, uh, who's gone from hockey to law to politics, you'll see it's going down every time. <laughs> uh, but what is it like, and to perform at the levels you know, that he has performed? So the idea of it, even though I'm throwing questions this way, the questions are most likely going to be ignored because they're all smarter anyway, but to get from them some, some sense of what they've learned about their country, what their particular achievements have taught them, the relationship of, of an honor to what it is that they have achieved, and what messages they may pass to you. So I'll start it off. Uh, I'm here only, as I say, by, as a kind of contrast element to the people of achievement over here and you can consider me a turnstile with a necktie. Uh, I'll throw a few questions, and then if there's any reasonable time left over, maybe some in the audience, uh, and you'll do a better job if you could come up with some remarks to address to our distinguished guest. I'll, I'll speak a little about each of them as I ask them to say something, but I won't go the whole resume. It's enough to know in many cases that they've got the distinction they receive, and we don't necessarily have to go through great volumes of biography. I am going to start with Carolyn Acker, Carolyn Acker is, is a, a prodigy of all sorts of energy, and primarily she began uh, her career as a registered nurse, but she has become quite taken, as I learned in an extremely exuberant conversation last Friday by phone, the value, in the sense that, not speaking it as a cliche, the passionate value of real education, and what education means for life, for young people, but especially for young people, who may have, who may have more obstacles or more barriers than others. I can't speak uh, what, what Carolyn does, but she started a, a program for this. And I'd just like her to, if it's possible, put in a capsule, Carolyn. What is it that you have learned about the power of education, the contacts that you have made with students in fairly, fairly uh, hard circumstances, and what drives you to the, the accomplishments that eventually gave you the honor you've received? When I was the executive director of the Regent Park Community Health Center, we, um, we developed a vision called Community Succession, and we wanted the young people who were growing up in that community to become the future doctors, nurses, social worker, executive director of the health center. 
had no idea how to do that. But it was taking that vision to the community, learning, hearing from the people that education and employment were the answers. And now I know what the, one of the most serious problems we have in Canada are the dropout rates from high school in our lowest income communities. And these kids are growing up with single parents. Uh, they're new immigrants and aboriginals living in poverty. And you have dropout rates in this country over 50, 60, and in some cases over 70%. And high school dropouts, dropout rates have been considered an intractable problem because we focus mostly on the school to make the interventions. We need good schools, but we also need to focus on the community. So by providing supports, academic support, social support through mentoring, a bus ticket to get to school based on school attendance, a small scholarship, we've shown, we took the dropout rate in Regent Park after five years, it started in 2000, it was 56% the dropout rate, and 20% were going on to post-secondary. Five years later, the dropout rate was 13%, and 83% were going on to post-secondary. <laughs> and there are 12, 12 pathways to education programs in Canada now, from Halifax to Winnipeg, over 4,488 students involved. And the results that they're getting mirror the results from Regent Park. Post-secondary education participation has gone up over 300%. Carol, just as a, as a follow-up question before I go to our next, next person, what in your judgment that comes out of your experience makes the dropout rate as opposed to other factors, what makes that the essential instrument or the essential measurement that you're looking at? Well, 70% of all jobs now, new jobs and present jobs, require some sort of post-secondary education. And if you drop out of high school, you're doomed to living a life of poverty, probably. Mm -hmm. That's usually what happens. And this program that we've done, the Boston Consulting Group did a study and proved that every dollar donated generates back $25 to society. As these students are graduating, going on to post-secondary, working and paying taxes rather than being living in poverty. Thanks very much. Uh, I'll call next upon uh, former Chief Justice, uh, former Justice rather of the Supreme Court of Canada, Ian Binney, uh, this gentleman is celebrated beyond all powers of exaggeration. Uh, even the Globe and Mail, uh, which is a source of unimpunable integrity, <laughs> argued that he is the country's premier judge. From informal contact with people in the legal profession myself over the years, I do know, and I know it seriously, he's renowned as a raconteur. He has a mind uh, that is as powerful analytically as any others, but he also has the gift of actually communicating in phrases that people find interesting. Uh, that's rare in public life. It certainly doesn't manifest itself in Ottawa, but the Supreme Court is a different body. One other thing I would like to mark, I cannot imagine, and I'm being serious, I cannot imagine a person leaving law school in our country and looking up to the altitudes, because it is the Everest of the Supreme Court, uh, and wondering whether this was even a possibility. What is it like to be at the summit of possibly 
the one institution in our society at the present time that so far is not eroded by the cynicism that attends almost every other institution. Uh, I'm very wary of trying to lead this man, but I'll throw this at him. Uh, having had the experience you have had of being on a Supreme Court, what perspectives did it bring to you that you did not have before? And if you care to, what did it teach you about the country over which, in many cases, you made these adjudications? Uh, well, I think, uh, I mean, first of all, I, I resent your introduction because one thing uh, judges benefit from is low expectations uh, <laughs> when they open their that. mouths <laughs> and kind of wrecked uh, that. Uh, the, uh, the experience on the Supreme Court uh, is a very broadening uh, one. As a lawyer, you start off... Uh, you know, collections, slip and fall cases, car crashes, uh, so on, and then you limp up through the uh, uh, ladder of uh, litigation. and You get more and more interesting cases, but you never have the scope uh, uh, that you get on the Supreme Court of highly contentious uh, issues. Of course, a lot of that has been uh, since the Charter. Before the Charter, the uh, well, a Supreme Court judge wouldn't be sitting here because uh, they were even more tedious than they are now. But the charter has uh, brought the legal profession really to the uh, front uh, of the stage, and the charter has established itself as this statement of Canadian values, and this was not uh, expected when the charter was enacted uh, in 1982. As to what I've learned, uh, I think what has most uh, impressed me about uh, the perch on the Supreme Court is how quickly, uh, how decent Canadians are as a people. Uh, they empathize. Uh, there are decisions which the Supreme Court have made uh, which were highly controversial. Uh, I, I'll take uh, gay rights as uh, one of them, and gay marriage and so on. At the time, it was a huge issue. You know, people were marching through the streets, what they had somewhere between half a million and a million people marching in Paris against uh, same-sex marriage last weekend. Canada, it's a big issue, and then we, we reach a solution, and people move on. Seems to me it's a complete non-issue in Canada now. Would you, it's not uh, indirect flattery, would you ascribe at least some of the reason why a country like Canada can accept what up to that moment was highly explosive? I remember a minister of justice, a minister of justice in the Liberal cabinet in 97, swearing that there would never be any diminution of the marriage between man and woman. And I think it's by 2001 it had been inscribed in granite across the land, and as you say, uh, used an ugly term, very little backlash, was it because it got mediated through the courts, and the courts, because they do retain this residuum of honor and prestige that other institutions, alas, have lost, that it's more easily accepted, or is it just the change of the times? I think that the uh, Supreme Court played a secondary role, the courts generally played a secondary role. I think people were way ahead of the politicians on this issue. I think the general sense in the, in the you know, ordinary people across the country is that, look, if it, if it makes people happy to marry, get married. You know, a lot of people don't want to get married. Uh, 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 
a lot of people say, you know, you're crazy to get married. A lot of the gay community said, you've taken away our excuse for not getting married. So uh, there was sort of a mixed uh, view across uh, the spectrum. But I think that the, the fundamental principle that it came down to is uh, Canadians saying to themselves, what difference does it make? Why shouldn't people have access to marriage if that's what they want? And, and it's this sense of decency which came out again and again and again. I know we've had uh, disagreements on Aboriginal rights, but that's another uh, area where, uh, you know, there is an underlying sense that something has to be done. The courts are doing it. There may be disagreements on particular issues, but on the whole, people are very decent and they're happy to see the, the Aboriginal people get a leg up after some centuries of not having it. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, I'll proceed now to Ken Dryden. There was a great council that we conducted with the members of the board of the Canadian Club. Whether we'll, if we had Ken in captivity here, as for the while we do, we could ask him to elaborate on the nature, the origin, and the strength of the curse that is currently on the Toronto Maple Leafs. <laughs> but we figured he didn't really, really want to go there. <laughs> That's an enigma too deep even for his fine mind. <laughs> But he is, he is a, a true original uh, in that his exemplary uh, accomplishments in sports, in politics, in law, in writing, in education. And he's another, he's a person that I also found from a preliminary conversation has, I think, some very interesting ideas simply about achievement and about things. So I just ask Mr. Mr. Dryden, in a career that's so rich in a variety of its accomplishments, what is accomplishment, what is achievement, and what are the things that most fasten your interest or you see as most significant for the community at large? Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, you, I don't think any of us start out um, with the idea of, of, of achieving. We're, we're so absorbed in something, whatever that something is, and, uh, and we want to do it well, and we want to have some impact. And uh, and that's where our focus is. Uh, and I think if it's anywhere else, it doesn't it doesn't turn out. Um, and then and then in a lot of ways, it's only retrospectively that you discover what your achievement may be. Um, I mean, I know that, that. I mean, I've had when when sports is part of your career. Uh, if you reach a certain age, then you're going to have other careers because a sports career ends. I mean, it ends at a pretty young age, and you'd better have another career or more, or it's a lot, a lot of years to play out the string. And, and, uh, uh, and so, in many ways, through sport, you, you, you experience a full life before, you know, by the age of 30 or 31. You go through being a new person, being a, at the core of something, being uh, a veteran, and being you know, somebody who is out the other side, and you're into retirement. And you're feeling all of those different aspects. Um, when I was playing, I thought that achievement was, um, I mean, and happily, I was in a place where achievement was really possible. I mean, in, in Montreal in the 1970s. I mean, <laughs> I mean, achievement was everywhere around us. And, and we had better be achievers or we weren't going to be around for very long. Um, and so achievement was making the Montreal Canadiens. It was... It was winning Stanley Cups. Um, I think, I mean, it, it's interesting sort of over time. It's been, 
the last time I played, you know, was almost this date in 1979. I mean, it's been a long time since I've played. And, and no matter how good you are, unless you're, you know, Rocket Richard or, or Bobby Orr, um, after a while, you're not so well remembered, uh, except by a few who really thought you were terrific, you know, as a kid. And, and so what is it that I did in sports that was a real achievement? Well, we won those cups, but I didn't change the game in any way. I mean, the way in which I played as a goalie, it didn't, it didn't transform the way people play. If anybody remembers me at all as a goalie, it's for what I didn't do. It was standing around, waiting for the action to come, which often didn't come in Montreal. Um, and, but in the end, and it's interesting, I mean, it took a long time for me to understand it, is that in meeting people in the 30-plus in the years since I've stopped playing, so I think what, what, what my achievement was was that I was playing for the Montreal Canadiens and winning Stanley Cups and going to law school at McGill at the same time. That was the achievement. And it, wasn't the, it wasn't one or the other. It was the combination okay. of the two. And, and it was, um, if, if you do something in public, and people use the phrase of role model, which I don't really like, but at least you're an example of something. People see you, and they use you for their purposes as an example of something, good, bad, aspiration, uh, or the reverse. And I, now I realize that, in fact, there were tens of thousands of kids around the country who may have had an interest in hockey, mm -hmm. also may have been interested in some other things, and they were given the right to have an interest in something else and not just play hockey. Uh, they could see that somebody else was doing it. And so if a coach said, well, you know, uh, you know you, yeah, you should do your homework, but we've got to practice, that player felt okay. as if he uh, had a right to say, no, actually, there are other things that I have, I have the license to be interested in. I wonder, Ken, if I can put one more question. And then, by the way, if, if members of uh, this esteemed audience, and then if I can say so, especially the younger people here, if you have questions, uh, they'll undoubtedly be superior to mine. And after this question, if there are some people who directly like to put a question to the panel, I'll, I'll get it going. But I want to go back to Ken for one more question. It's half light and not light. You were in sports. That's a team activity. It's almost a definition of, of, of the cooperative effort. Politics is a team activity. Were any of the rules or patterns of one of those games present in the other, or what was the great contrast between them in terms of their both group, group efforts towards a, a prize? Yeah. yeah, I think, I mean, they are very similar in, in that regard, and, and of where, you know, you genuinely know in both instances that you cannot win it alone. I mean, you can be Wayne Gretzky, and you are not going to win the Stanley Cup unless you have Marc Messier and Grant Fuhr and others around you. It's not going to happen. You can be you know, a fabulous member of parliament. Unless that party of people around you is really good, you are simply not going to win. And it's often hard to remember that because we tend to get rewarded for being an individual, for something that we did that was a little bit different from somebody else, and of course we're all flattered by it, we all play up to it, 
and we can forget at times that in fact it, it really required everybody else. But it's, I mean, one of the great things, and, and you'll see it again in a few weeks' time when the Stanley Cup is, is, is awarded, is that all of it, and when it's awarded and there are those interviews in the, in the locker room afterwards, you'll hear players asked about, you know, uh, or, or, you know, oh, you were fabulous, you were fabulous. And, and, and everybody loves to hear that, and they want it to be true, and you will hear almost for sure them saying instantly, yes, but if it wasn't for Phil over here and Tony over here and Andre over here, it wouldn't have happened. Now, we are all selfish people, but at that particular moment, when that cup is won, when the achievement is made, and you know that it's a group achievement, you feel overwhelmingly that group. And there is nothing that feels better than the group achievement. It feels better than the individual one at that particular moment. Before I jump to the audience, uh, if either of the principal panelists here want to talk to each other for just a moment or pick up on either comment, feel free. It's a kind of open house here. Well, I'll uh, uh, make a comment uh, on uh, what Ken said, uh, uh, because uh, I have uh, been quite a fan of his over the years. Uh, I regard him as a sort of thinking man's Don Cherry. Uh, <laughs> he was on a uh, he was on a television program, uh, uh, I guess, celebrating the 1972 series and was asked, uh, well, what was it like to be behind in those series and so much uh, pressure? Didn't you get uh, discouraged? And uh, your answer was something along the lines of when you're in the middle of that situation, you are so totally focused on the job in front of you that you don't realize uh, the surrounding circumstances. You're just uh, going straight ahead. And I think it's that uh, focus that is typical, in, in, in my experience, of people who are successful at doing what they do. Uh, lawyers getting bashed around uh, daily in courts, trials going badly, uh, witnesses not saying what you expected them to say, uh, Supreme Court judges who are unpleasant uh, in posing questions and so on. Uh, it, is, it is this uh, tremendous focus and energy behind the focus that seems to propel people uh, forward. And uh, I think it's important you know, to note that uh, uh, beyond the world of hockey that Ken was talking about. I wonder if we go on now. Carolyn, uh, let you have a... Yeah, well, <clears throat> I agree with you. Focus is key. And we were so focused on breaking the cycle of poverty and finding out what was wrong and, and doing the action research because we were driven to break the cycle of poverty. As a friend who's here told me, her mother said, there'll always be poor people, but why does it have to be the same family generation after generation? It doesn't have to be. And by having that singular focus when we discovered what that dropout rate was and measuring, measuring credit accumulation, absenteeism, measuring and measuring, <clears throat> and providing uh, <clears throat> support, we prove that low-income kids can do just as well as anybody else if they're given supports. And a few supports in the evening, partnering with the schools, works, but it was our singular focus okay. that caused the achievement to happen. 
Now, Lynn, with your permission, uh, I'm, Lynn is, by the way, the executive director of this, and she, more than anybody else, commands everybody in this room. Uh, you wouldn't have this function unless the general was here. Uh, where am I going now, General? Uh, Downer, yes, go right ahead, please. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Christina Lee from Jarvis Collegiate Institute, and I have two questions for you, for your, the panel today. And the first one is, um, if you have any advice on choosing a career and being an active citizen in the community, and secondly, what motivated and inspired you in your lives? All three? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Reasonably terse. <laughs> my, my father instilled in me a deep commitment to social justice, and the Sisters of St. Joseph that taught me reinforced that all the way through high school, elementary and high school, and I met them again at St. Michael's School of Nursing. Um, but you have to find your passion, and your career that you choose when you come out of university isn't necessarily going to be the career you will have you know, 20 years later, and I'm a perfect example of that, being at the bedside doing palliative care all the way to running a community health center and focusing on community health and the determinants of health. Uh, Ken? The, the, it, the word that is used now a lot is in terms of your passion, and we used to call it about your interest. Now we've kind of elevated it to something you know, beyond that. I think all that it is is, is, is finding you know, or what are those things that you really like to do? I mean, what are those things that, that, um, uh, that, that as you're doing them, uh, you're so absorbed in them, and as you're not doing them, you're thinking them? And because, I mean, what, what is happening if you, if you find something that you really love is that you spend all kinds of time at it. I mean, you can't spend enough time at it. And the longer you spend at anything, the better you're going to do it. And the better you're going to do it, the more you're going to love it. And so all of, all of the other elements that are required in order to really do something worthwhile emanate out of that feeling of just wanting to be in it, around it, overwhelmed by it, and just entirely focused on it. And then the rest has a chance to happen. I take a, a slightly more cynical view. Uh, I think uh, the secret uh, of success is uh, uh, opportunism and uh, self-promotion. I think uh, when you start out uh, in a career, uh, you have to avoid uh, living somebody else's picture of what you ought to be doing. You know, your mother wants you to be a doctor. Your father wants you to be an accountant. Therefore, you carry on down that path. I think what you, you really have to follow your own interests, as, as my colleagues uh, have mentioned, but you have to keep constantly assessing whether you're, you're running into a dead end, that this is not really what you wanted to do, and it, it's not turning out uh, properly, and you have to have the courage to change direction. Say, this isn't working. Uh, and I'm not simply because I'm working for the government and there's a pension and I don't want to lose the pension. You, you simply cannot get locked in. And, and the people who I know who have been highly successful have generally 
seen something, sometimes quite by accident, latched onto it and run with it and, and have achieved high success. But it wasn't planned. It wasn't part of the career path, never could have been part of the career path. So I emphasize uh, flexibility. And when I say self-promotion, I, I don't mean that you, you go out with a sandwich board and uh, announce uh, who you are to everybody and uh, uh, sundry, but there's a kind of reticence in, in Canadians that is uh, uh, un, unfashionable but sort of uh, unacceptable. Uh, I was told as a young lawyer, you know, if somebody calls and says, I've got a case in, in front of the uh, drainage referee, are you an expert in drainage law? Well, you've never heard of drainage law. No idea what it's about. You say, yes. <laughs> he says, look, if you don't say yes, they're going to call some other lawyer, and the other lawyer is going to say yes, even though he knows no more about it than you do. So go for it. I've always thought that was excellent advice. <laughs> Along the same lines, I think. <laughs> um, when I started in the NHL, I started almost in the playoffs and against a team that had won the Stanley Cup the year before. And all the, always the questions then and afterwards were, how could you possibly handle a situation like that? I mean, of never being in this situation, but you've got to deal with it. And I never had an answer for a long time. And then I realized that what it really was, was that I had no idea that I could do it but I also didn't have any idea that I couldn't. And that's what really allowed it to happen. I have no idea of what drainage law is. I don't have any idea whether I can pull it off, but I don't know that I can't pull it off. And why not me? The other person thinks they can pull it off. Why not me? Well, I'm going to get rid of those damn sandwich boards. They're not working. <laughs> Thank you for that really good advice. Uh, our next question comes from... Hi there. Hi there. My name's Calvin from Sir Oliver Mowat Collegiate Institute. And my classmates and I were wondering, Mr. Vinny, what it was like going straight from private practice as a lawyer to the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, well, it was a bit uh, of an out-of-body experience. Uh, uh, sitting hunched over your desk on Bay Street uh, uh, one day and then a month later uh, sitting on the Quebec secession reference uh, as to whether a positive vote in Quebec in favor of secession would uh, uh, allow Quebec to, to walk out of uh, uh, Canada. Uh, but I think it, it is true that uh, you, uh, you do rise to the occasion. Uh, if a lot is expected of you, uh, then you tend to deliver. Uh, and I think it's, it's so important in education that, uh, you know, if young kids are, are, are willing to settle for a, a sort of mediocre uh, career, if they look at uh, people and leading in politics or sports or whatever, say, well, that, you know, that's not me. I'm just not made of that stuff. That's wrong. I think you can do it. And to go back to the, the previous example, if, if you don't do it, who else is going to do it? And they're no more qualified than you are, and they're no more talented than you are, but they're reaching for it, and they're going after it, and when they get the opportunity, they accomplish it. Now, I, uh, the example that uh, Ken gave about goaltending in the NHL is, is a, 
a rather intergalactic example of what I'm talking about. Uh, but it's true on a much more mundane level. You know, you've got to have the confidence that presented with the opportunity, you grab it and you run with it. And if people don't like what you did, well, that's up to them. That's their problem. You did as well as you could. Carol, in your dealings with people in high schools, is, is that attitude, that set of mind, something that you try to communicate? <clears throat> there were many. There are many obstacles for low-income kids. So what? What if you? Uh, um, develop a way to help them overcome those obstacles. What I saw was if they didn't think they could do it and they put their mind to it and they accomplished it and they learned that they could accomplish just about anything they wanted to as long as they set a goal and worked hard at it and asked for help when they needed it. And they learned that in Pathways too. Okay. We have a question from the far wing. Hi, my name is Saf from Winston Churchill Collegiate Institute, and my question is to Mr. Dryden. Uh, while, while juggling uh, your NHL career and studying law, you ever feel like you had to choose between the two? And how did you get past that? That's a really good question, and I was really lucky. And, and, and sometimes people don't like the word lucky, um, but I think in this case I actually was. That all the way along in, in growing up, um, I had, I mean, my, you know, the, the, my parents' interests primarily were us getting a university education. They hadn't. That was part of their generation. Our generation would be different. But all along, it was sports, and it was, and and it was going to school, and and freedom could be gained by doing fine in school. So long as I was doing fine in school, I could do almost anything else, and 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 and. And, but all the way along, what I assumed would happen is that somebody would make the decision for me. That, you know, sorry kid, you're not able to make this team, and then hockey would be over. Nobody ever made that decision for me. And so then all of a sudden I'm into this position in Montreal where it's Montreal Canadians and it's also McGill Law School. And I would bet that every other general manager in the National Hockey League at that particular time would have said, you have to make a choice. You cannot even try because you'll fail, and if you fail, we'll be affected by your failure. So you have to make a choice. Or the dean of McGill Law School would say, sorry, you have to make a choice. There's a regulation here, no outside employment. You have outside employment. You have to make a choice. Neither of them did. Both Sam Pollock, who was the general manager, and John Durnford, who was the dean, said, we will not force you to make a decision. If you can do it, fine. If you can't, sorry about it. Uh, we can't help you, but we won't tell you you can't try. And, and here you have a general manager who was the most successful in the history of the NHL, who had every right to say, you can't give it a try, and he never forced me to make a decision. And so then the rest could happen. And, uh, but it was, I got lucky with those two people. Okay. Uh, I'll go over here. Well, I'm going to make one note. Uh, I'm extremely pleased, and I think everybody else is as well, uh, that the younger people are directing some questions. But I also want to make sure that you don't see that this is an exclusion if you reach reasonable maturity. 45 and over are allowed to talk. 
Uh, go right ahead. Hi, my name is Orthi. I'm from Pathways to Education. So I just want to add on to what Carolyn Ackerman was saying, that a lot of youth do face a lot of obstacles. And this question is a little personal, but what barriers have you faced as you embarked on this journey to success, and how did you overcome it? To whom are all three? All three. All three. Thank you. Uh, Carolyn, you I, want to start? I, I missed the last part. Uh, can you repeat? What barriers have you faced as you embarked on this journey to success, and how did you overcome it? I encountered many, many barriers. <laughs> um, I never gave up. And uh, if I was st stuck, I asked for help. I was not afraid to pick up the phone and say, you know what, I think you might know how to do this. I don't. Could you give me some advice? So never being afraid to ask for advice. And the other thing is being focused and not giving up if you know it's the right thing. Actually, developing the program was the hardest thing I did in my life. Before it got off the ground, I was sitting on a precipice wondering if I was going to fail here. We had donor dollars and youth who were struggling, and it was really tough. But I said, it's the right thing to do. I know it's the right thing to do, so I will persevere. And to get pathways well known was difficult also. Uh, Ken Dryden, the obstacles? I mean, not heroic obstacles to overcome. I mean, just, just the obstacles that any of us face. Uh, and the biggest ones, of course, are kind of what we've talked about, of, of where all of us all the time are doing something today that we didn't do yesterday. And, and we have to find a way of being able to do it uh, today when we weren't asked to do it yesterday or couldn't do it yesterday. And, and so not to think that, uh, and, you know, and Annie was sort of making the, the, you know, the, uh, the distinction uh, you know, kind of between different levels of, 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 of sort of finding, you know, that, that nothing heroic. I mean, I, I, I grew up in Etobicoke when Etobicoke had a different set of understandings. And, and, and just, you know, went, you know, was going to go on to university, wanted to play sports, wanted to be on teams, wanted to do well and face the regular kind of, of obstacles. And, and yes, you're always in, in a situation where you're not doing as well as you would like. Uh, you don't have an answer. You're trying to find an answer. You try to find it within yourself. Try to find it with others. But, but not heroic levels. I mean, not something that would be different from the, the kinds of things that you're facing in your life. Uh, Justice Binnick? Well, I would uh, just pick up on this uh, question of individual effort uh, because uh, 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 sports and so on uh, discussed team effort. When you go into one of the professions like law, uh, it is an individual, highly individual uh, occupation. Uh, when you take on some client's problems, uh, they're looking to you to solve them. Uh, if uh, uh, they're looking for uh, a lawyer, they've got uh, thousands uh, to choose from. So somehow a young lawyer, a young doctor, or a young writer uh, has to emerge from the pack and uh, acquire an identity that becomes uh, marketable, that becomes understood in the broader uh, uh, community. And I think... Uh, Again, there is too much of a tendency in Canada to, to retreat uh, 
speak for the lawyers, into their big bank towers and their self-sufficient uh, giant law firms. And I think that people should be out there. People should be experimenting more. People should be doing more international work. People should be doing more pro bono work. Uh, there is a, a real need, it seems to me, for people to really grab opportunities and distinguish themselves from the pack, and in doing so, their, their career becomes self-reinforcing. The better known you are, the better known you become, and uh, the more opportunities you have. I'm going to ask a question myself, if it's okay for all three. We're getting reasonably close to the uh, rounding up. I like two things just, just now when Ken Dryden alluded to it, when he said these weren't heroic obstacles, and I like uh, what Justice Binnage was just saying there, that there are all sorts of mixes and things, and they don't always have to go to an extremity. I'll start with Ken Dryden. You three, and it's not a, a coat of uh, warm flattery, you three have exuberant achievements. I mean, the, everything, the companions and orders and officers, medals and all the stuff that you've done. And we tend to think of, of achievement in heroic terms. Who wins the Olympics? Uh, who's the best chess player in the world? Or who's the first physicist? But achievement is also something that, that takes place in a quieter zone, at least that's my theory of it. And that you can be not on an exalted level, but you can be doing things in everyday life. They can be social as well as involved in, say, business or law or sports. I just wondered if you could get some reflections from all three of you who are high achievers that achievement isn't limited just to the Olympic levels of things, that everyday life offers opportunities for a kind of achievement that has as much interior satisfaction and power as perhaps the more celebrated ones. So I'll start with Ken, and then I'll go to the Justice, and then to Carl. Yeah, yeah that's, I mean, that's a good question. And, and I, think, um, I, I think all of us, deep down, are really purpose people. Um, that we are looking for a purpose. We are looking for something that has some, that feels valuable, uh, that feels as if it, it matters. And, and, um, and, and whatever that is, I mean, it's going to be different, you know, from one person to another, um, how you express yourself that way. But, but that's what we're hoping. I mean, that's what we're hoping. That's what puts, gets us out of bed in the morning and, and puts spring in our in our step, and uh, and often it's you know it, it may well be things that that aren't that visible as Rex was saying to to somebody else. Uh, they may matter you know just more to us than others can understand. But I think that that's um, you know and what we're looking for, and it's one of the awkward things you know, about something like an Order of Canada, and it's and it's not any humility at all for any of the you know any of us here to say uh, you know that there are lots and lots and lots of other people who have achieved enormously and have done really important things who do not have the order of Canada pin it, it just is absolutely true absolutely true uh, and we know it and it's, it's one of kind of the embarrassments of being recognized because of all of those other people who are doing special things in big ways, small ways, visible, not visible ways. And we happen to do things that are pretty visible, and we get some rewards you know, for that. But uh -uh, there are 
thousands and thousands of people that are doing really special things. Justice Binet, what's the source of your embarrassment on this point? <laughs> well, I think uh, there are, there's sort of an official CV, which is why uh, we're up here. Uh, and I don't think it's the official CV that uh, gives uh, uh, pleasure. Uh, I think the most satisfying uh, cause I was ever involved in as a lawyer was acting uh, for Guy Paul Morin, who was wrongfully convicted of murdering uh, his next door neighbor. And uh, that was a, a case in which the system had uh, spectacularly malfunctioned and everybody was rushing, all the uh, officialdom, the crown attorneys, the experts and so on, uh, to really uh, cover their behinds uh, and pretend that this uh, disaster uh, hadn't uh, occurred. And there were a bunch of lawyers acting uh, in the criminal appeals that were taken from uh, the conviction. Uh, I was one of them, uh, that I continued on uh, acting for him in his civil claim against uh, the province. And, uh, you know, over a career you get involved in all sorts of uh, legally spectacular uh, cases if, you're, if you stay around long enough. Uh, but uh, the sense of, of really coming face to face with the system to which you've dedicated your professional career that has malfunctioned and to be able to give it a bit of a push in the right direction so that justice is done uh, was far more satisfying than all the stuff in the official uh, CV. So pleasure, I don't think, comes from formal recognition and uh, honorary doctorates and, and the rest of it. It, it really comes from doing something uh, which is of, of great human uh, importance and where you feel your skills really did contribute to making the, the world a bit better. Carla, and then we'll go to the question, the last one. Like my colleagues, um, <clears throat> I didn't set out to make a big achievement to get an award. <clears throat> In fact, being up here, I find it uncomfortable because I... I'm shy, and I don't think I'm any different from any of you in this room. Um, but achievements can be of any size, and I get a great deal of pleasure out of the achievements of the students. <laughs> so it isn't your own achievements, but it might be something that you helped happen. Um, but if you think about a tutor going to tutor a young person, and they, they succeed, what an achievement made by both, right? Um, I uh, learned I'm a purpose-driven individual, Rex. I uh, tried to not work for a little while, and uh, I almost went out of my mind. So um, I have to serve, and I have to make a difference in some way, shape, or form. Well, this will be the last question, because we are getting close to the imperatives of the clock. Go right ahead. Hi, my name is Barbara Shell. And um, I wanted to ask um, uh, some questions uh, personally, if that's okay, um, also within your field. Um, first of all, to Carolyn Acker, um, I'm just wondering, what age are you actually looking at when you address the students with regard to the pathways to education? And have you considered 
um, looking at um, children from, you know, from a very young, young age, mm. uh, not only in terms of getting um, uh, the children um, who are uh, who are involved, for instance, not only for, from an from a young age, but also other uh, issues that those children may be going through in terms of violence in the house. Do you, do, you know, do you? Um, do you look at that as well in terms of the poverty, the cycle of poverty, the cycle of violence, and kind of combine those two and, and, and start it from an early age up? Um, and then uh, the next question I just wanted to ask, sorry, um, both uh, the Honorable Ken Dryden and um, the Honorable Ian Biddy is, you know, in terms of what's going on today um, in our city uh, uh, with Mayor Ford, uh, what's your instinct as to where this is going to go to and how can we avoid um, these kind of scenarios from ever you know, okay. going forward? I'll ask for compressed answers as there is a real clock on these. So, Carolyn, you first. Um, yes. No, I'm a proponent of the late Fraser Mustard. Er, er, when a woman is pregnant and the first six years of life are crucial, and we had a program that focused on the moms teaching them parenting skills, infant stimulation, getting early intervention for the youth. We had terrific elementary schools. And Canada has a wonderful school, public school system, which we must guard with our life and make sure it continues. And for, for us, we, we made the intervention where, where it needed to be made because we saw where the kids were falling out. It was when they went from grade eight into grade nine. So we, we took them as they graduated from grade eight and built the program to, to support them through high school and give them a hand up to post-secondary. And those are key transitions in life that you have to successfully no, negotiate to become a healthy human being. And uh, Mr. Dryden, you can take on the first landmine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't have an instinct on it. I think I think it's a matter of, and I'm not sure it's a time for instinct. I think it's a, a time for it'll it'll play itself. We will we will know more uh, with every day that passes, I would assume, and then we can you know then things get done as they should get done. The only thing I would say, um, and you know, is is um, it's 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 a really real. I mean, I could I could win every room in the country by walking into it and saying, oh, you know, government, it is so useless. I mean, it is just a waste of money. Every penny that is collected in taxes just goes down the drain. And everybody who's involved is really inept and really incompetent. And I would be applauded. I'd get a standing ovation. I don't happen to think that's true. And what I hope that comes out of this is not a further instinctive understanding that anybody who is involved in public life at all is not quite up to it in any larger sense. And why is it that, that those really good people don't go into politics or into public life? I think there are a lot that do. And I think that, that, um, uh, and, and that the great majority who do go in are people who are interested uh, in things that you're interested in and are, are wanting things to be better and so on. So, you know, that 
that's what I hope emerges out of this is not a further sense that all oh, these are you know this is just trashy stuff and will forever be. Just to pick up on the point in 10 seconds only, it is those people that are not quite as celebrated who do go into it for the right reasons. There's a measure of that kind of achievement I was, I was hinting at in the previous question. It doesn't always have to be Olympic. Anyway, uh, Justice Binney, you have the honor, sir, of concluding uh, today's discussion. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think uh, you know, the, the media uh, has quite a bit to answer for in terms of uh, prejudging uh, the outcome of uh, some very serious allegations. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I think we have learned something very valuable, which is that those little uh, City of Toronto uh, pins, uh, which they hand out on uh, formal occasions, uh, apparently you can smoke them. <laughs> you are a mischievous human being. Uh, I'm going to turn the stage over now to the director of the Canadian Club, but before I do, uh, I want personally uh, to thank all three mischief makers, all of them actually, uh, for agreeing to the second uh, uh, appearance of this. And I'm also, I'll reiterate, it, it really was ex not more than pleasant, it was very edifying to see so many young people uh, that are bright and have no shyness in questioning uh, these giants of uh, the Canadian pantheon. Anyway, it's a good bit of fun, and now the director of the, the uh, club will close proceedings and everyone will get a free beer. <laughs> Good afternoon and thank you, Mr. Murphy. And ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, I want to thank Carolyn Acker, Justice Ian Binney, and the Honorable Ken Dryden for their rich and wonderful life stories as told today to us through the eyes of Rex Murphy. Canadians everywhere are indebted to each of you for your tremendous contributions you have each made, whether it is in eradicating poverty enhancing our legal system, or championing youth literacy and education. Your achievements, each of your achievements, truly reinforce the Order of Canada's motto of desiring a better country. Mr. Murphy, we always appreciate the skillful way you hold our collective attention, whether it's on air, in print, or in person. You're an extraordinary uh, storyteller and a proud son of Newfoundland beyond imagination. Thank you for hosting our celebrations this afternoon to each of you. Thank you for your enormous uh, contributions today, and we uh, look forward to having you back again. On behalf of everyone, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Howard. These are very special afternoon when you're left with a reminder of, of what a wonderful country we do live in and the decent, kind, wonderful people who comprise it. So thank you to all of you for being here. Thank you also again to Deloitte for making today possible. We appreciate it very, very much. Um, this formally concludes our television programming, uh, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV. Actually, is currently being broadcast on Rogers TV and will be again in the days to come. We are very grateful to Rogers for their continued coverage of Canadian Club events. You can learn more about the club by visiting us at canadianclub.org, and we hope to see you all again soon. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you. Thank you.